Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting. interesting. The podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet. Often entertaining. Rarely conservative. Frequently informative. Occasionally occasionally interesting. interesting. Hey, Bebop. Hello. Who do we have on the podcast today? Becca. What's Becca up to? Getting ish done. That she is. She's doing it like a goddamn superhero. Uh, I met Becca my first week living in Los Angeles back in 2013. She and her family came to a dinner party that my roommates were throwing for nerdy new parents. I I lived with a baby when I moved to L.A. and Becca was pregnant at the same time as my roommate. I promptly became best friends with her and her 10-year-old son as we bonded over our love of art and my neighbor Totoro. Her 10-year-old son, that is. Becca and I bonded over other things. I went on to babysit for her three sons and was constantly astounded by their awesomeness. I was in awe of Becca from day one. I started admiring her because of what, of an, what an incredible parent she was. But the more I got to know her, the more incredible and interesting facets of her there were to discover. She was fun and funny, a badass mama bear, and one of the strongest people I've ever come across in this life. And it is clear that this strength is founded in her big, beautiful heart. She's changed so much and done so many adventures in the seven years since I met her. And it is always incredible to check in on her path. She has been working on a movie that is going to be an absolute game changer, and we talk about that a lot in this film. We've been waiting to do this podcast with Becca for basically since we started the podcast, we've been trying to get her on, so quarantine finally got her schedule (laughs) slowed down enough that we were able to have this awesome conversation. Um, Becca's an incredible storyteller and incredible person. You're going to love this podcast. And without further ado... Becca. Occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. So you're in Malibu. How's quarantine going? Are all all the boys with you? Like, are you are you homeschooling right now? Have I have all four of them, and we are in a. Two-bedroom house, a very small two-bedroom house, um, and it's working just fine. It's really sort of interesting to see how all of the assumptions that we make about space and what's required um, is just total bullshit, and you can live in total harmony 24-7. I mean, you know, whatever, we have messes and things are imperfect, but really, it's kind of awesome to be stuck on a mountain. Um, you know, we can see the ocean from here, which is a really, it's kind of like a little Nashville girl's wildest dream that I never thought would ever come true that I would live in a home with an ocean view and Malibu. Like it sounds, it sounds like my little, my little girl self would never have believed that this was something I would get to experience. And it is exactly, if not more magical than it sounds. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I have an ocean view on an island in Thailand. It's- <laughs> so that's like, that's, but you know, that was my plan. Like, I, know. I was like, okay, so I'm going to go to Thailand or like, you know, uh, someplace in New Jersey in order to make this ocean view a reality. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been really fortuitous and unexpected. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm totally coming. It's just taking a lot longer than I planned. Yeah. Well, because the hope is that then you won't have a deadline of when you need to go back anywhere, right? You're, you're going to come that's, here and just experience that's it. That's the idea. 
I kind of want to get my older children through high school and then little Ed and I, who is such, like, he's game for anything. Uh-huh. Like, I put him on a surfboard for the first time two days ago, and he nailed it. He can surf. He's he's six years old, and he can catch every fucking wave. <laughs> wow. So, I'm like, okay, we can do anything. We can backpack for nine weeks. It'll be kind. We'll, we'll have a great time. We'll eat nuts. That's awesome. <laughs> and snakes and That's whatever awesome. we find. <laughs> have you got, are you um, are still able to go outside and everything? We've got, um, we live in a pretty special place with a, a gated community, which sounds more kind of like, it's very, very farmish and like, like sleepy hollowish, lots of trees and the houses are set really, really far back and they're very old. This is a very old community. And because of that, everybody knows each other and we walk around. So every day we walk down our mountain down to the main drag that kind of leads to, to the PCH. And it feels like not any place I've ever been in the United States before. It's very old world. It's cobbity. Like there's so many trees and the houses are back under these trees and so we're outside pretty much every day. That sounds absolutely dreamy. <laughs> it is. It's like nature. I think I didn't realize how much um, I was suffering for as many years as I was suffering, not interacting on a daily basis with with our mother. I just wasn't. L.A. was – the demands um, were off. Like the things that I felt like were really critical to do first, second, and third every day didn't have anything to do with – um, being in any kind of close contact or intimate relationship with nature. And now that I am, I'm like, holy shit, no wonder I was drinking like yeah, four man. drinks a night to get through. <laughs> I was connected to that from which we came. And my kids too, they're all like. Yeah, just how much know. stress relief comes from nature is crazy. I had never lived not in a city until we moved to Thailand. And then we spent the last two years living in a tiny mountain town surrounded by rice fields and just being like Uh, nature was unavoidable every day all day and like all of my stress and anxiety and health related health problems went away like that like you know there's this really interesting study that I just had brought to my attention last week by a guy at Stanford I, I don't know his name but he did this study on kind of the sympathetic and parasympathetic stuff that happens on a subconscious level in humans right and this one particular study that this guy was citing was really about like how our eyes work and how when we're looking at a natural vista, we go into a, a state of sort of like soft focus that you can only do if you don't have anything in the forefront to focus on. So, for instance, looking at a phone, looking at a computer, having a conversation, all the things that we are forced to do 100% of the time in city life prevent that kind of soft focus, which has an actual immediate and substantial calming effect. So when you're standing on a mountain, what your eyes are doing is a completely different thing than if you're looking at your phone or talking to someone. And we don't know, like we're just starting to understand the whys of how nature really happens so um, meaningfully in our bodies. But there's actually this real sort of measurable stuff that happens. And being up here, because we are at the top of a mountain, I, when I drive down in the morning, I have this feeling that I've never had before in my life where it's like a gust of wind when I come over the crest of the hill and I see the valley and the ocean spread out and my eyes must do that thing. I don't know what it's called, but they must do the thing where they 
sort of taken everything rather than one thing. And I feel totally at peace in a way that I've only ever felt, you know, on a mountaintop in North Carolina or staring at the ocean from, you know, the front of a boat or anyway. Yeah. So nature, that's, that's what's pulling us through. We're very, very super deep in nature as a solution to pretty much every problem. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds absolutely magical. I'm so happy you got to have this magical house, especially during quarantine. <laughs> I know. Seriously, it's just ridiculous. Oh, so, like, how, how are you spending your days? What are the other boys up to? You know, it changes. Um, I Today I had to go and move my stuff out of my Venice office. I have an office in, in Venice Beach where... I do, I, I, my career has evolved, obviously, since I started making the movie and since I met you, but I have a private practice and I do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Nice. Um, which, nice. yeah, it's been very, it's, psychedelics were always um, something I was super interested in for their clinical value. Um, I went to college 20 years ago at the only place that was talking about that in San Francisco and then I've kind of gone in and out of it. But when I circled back to it, during my own healing process, it was, um, what totally changed my life. And so I felt, um, yeah, I just felt a calling. And so I started studying a lot more with, um, sort of re picked up the studying I'd started in my younger life. And so it used to be, this is answering your question of, of what I do every day. I used to, even during the quarantine, go in and treat people at the <laughs> clinic, um, with, or, you know, I'm technically that's totally illegal. So whatever. I hope there's no cops listening. But. <laughs> we say a lot of illegal yeah. stuff on here. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally fine. And I think also the other thing is that the clinic is closing. So I used to go in and I used to have, you know, medicine clients who were um, referred to me from other clinicians who don't practice this type of psychotherapy. And um, and so I used to really and, and some people were out of town and sometimes we would go to Airbnbs in Ojai. And so my life has been this sort of mashup of filmmaking and running my agency and doing this um, psychotherapy and then also having a private practice which has moved entirely online. All oh, of the wow. clients who, who I used to see, and I never intended to be a therapist, it's just that sometimes when I do um, these transformational experiences with clients, they want to start seeing me as a primary clinician. So, um, so I, I have, have reluctantly taken people on as sort of long-term clients and it's been really rewarding and, um, really, really rewarding. I thought it was going to be really tedious and I find that I look forward to my sessions a lot. Um, and so there's been that, but so my, my life now looks like as of today, uh, sitting at home and working, going down the mountain and walking, walking, we can walk under the PCH to the beach from our house. So sometimes we go walk on the beach, um, cooking a lot. I used to not cook. It's one of the other really huge gifts of this pandemic is, you know, when we were living in LA and we all had these hectic schedules and we were all sort of ships passing in the night, everybody had a debit card and everybody fed themselves. Me and Ed, you know, we would eat together, but Oliver, Henry, Louis, anybody else who was around was sort of, you know, this is like your job. And so we very rarely cooked together, thought about food together, engaged with, you know, the nourishment that we were taking in. And 
I, I, I have to say that that was probably the hardest part of this for me was getting back into, cause it's work, man. That's why people are so willing to pay the high prices for food. Yeah. Like plan it. You got to shop for it. It's so you time gotta, consuming. Like, There's so many yeah, decisions to be made. So many fucking tasks involved. Like, okay, well I have to eat this before it goes bad, but then this other stuff is going to go bad. That was supposed to go with something else. And like, it is just such, it is such a process and it's so labor intensive mentally more than even, you know, physically or financially. But but I've managed after two months of it, I feel like, to make peace with what a better life it is yes. to have a relationship with, you know, it's so funny, like, I'm not a big meat eater. I'm just not. And not, not, I mean, I'm totally on board with the ethical reasons, the environmental reasons. And that's still not why I didn't do it. It's just mainly because I've always felt like it's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> Like raw meat's just gross. And then I watched this series, this documentary series by Michael Pollan, who's one of my favorite writers of all time on, on food. And it was called cooked. And after I watched that, I was like, what my issue with the meat is that I've never been honest with myself about what a sacrifice it is and, and the industry that brings it to me. And the reason I felt gross is because the ways that I've consumed meat have been gross and there's a way to consume meat that's not gross. And so, you know, during this period, I think I've gotten really conscious about the quality of food I'm buying, the way the chickens are raised that, you know, whatever, these are like totally first world opportunities that I can even consider this and choose what kind of eggs I eat. I realize what that sounds like, but no, but it makes such a huge difference. That's what I mean too, that we do have these opportunities and we also have the opportunity and privilege of being inconsiderate and not being conscious of these decisions. And that is most people take the path of least resistance and choose well, blindly or don't choose at all. So I think it's absolutely that's exactly right. incredible. Or and don't it, choose. Yeah. It's, it's like the most powerful thing we can do to just be conscious of our decisions, especially as it, when it comes to food. Like this is the thing I care about so much and it is, yeah, you, we share, we share our perspectives totally it, like, that it's nuanced. I mean, food is just everything. It is our, it is our connection to the planet. It's the thing that keeps us alive. It is like our, our primary interaction with mother nature. It, it, yeah, it's the thing that I have cared about most in my entire life. It's just about it's just about staying conscious with your thoughts. It's not saying you have to sacrifice. It's not saying you have to be a hundred percent this way or the other. It's saying when you make the decision of what you're going to eat, be conscious during that process. Yeah. That is my big campaign in life. And most people just think, don't do it. No, they don't. And I think it's really I think it's really first of all just a shame that it's, you know, cause it is talked about, like there are people, there are these incredible writers and activists and, and, and people who, you know, are politicians who speak out on this and public, public, uh, intellectuals like Sam Harris, who talks about this kind of stuff a lot. And there, there are conversations happening, but I think it has been made so easy to not, I mean, food has become so easy as long as you just don't question where it comes from or what populations are being oppressed by its collection in their territory, or that it's it's a real dark, it's, it can be a really dark thing if you start to look closely at what your habits actually mean for the planet and people. And Absolutely. for me, I think, Absolutely. as a mother of four, 
you know, and, and many times in my life struggling with poverty to the degree of having to have food stamps. Like I am totally like not ashamed to say that when I was an undergraduate with three kids, I didn't have enough money to buy food for our family. And I got food stamps cause I qualified legitimately. And then two other times in my life during right after the recession, when we were doing really, really, really great. And then we were doing so, so, so badly that we couldn't afford food. It was like, it was ne- there was never an opportunity to consider what where the nutrition was coming from. It was like, okay, we got to get enough actual protein and carbs into our children with enough fiber so that they can process this. How do we make that combination work on almost no money? And so I think that when you're dealing also with food scarcity or financial scarcity, it's just too much, you think. But what I wish people understood was that it's so liberating because for me what's what's happened is like my relationship to food has changed so much that the stress around it has lifted in this way that has very little to do with how much of it or um, how much it costs it's like I almost feel like we just need so much less or it feels like we consume so much less because the quality and the relationship is so much richer and nourishing I don't know how, like how to, how to explain it other than it feels like if I had known what I know now when I was struggling financially to feed us, I would have been a lot less stressed because that whole idea of like, this is about so much more than the nutrients you put in your body. This is about how the entire cycle, the, the, you know, the earth and plants and animals interact in this beautiful dance that we're doing and it doesn't just have to be about dollars and protein and carbs it can be about something you know I probably would have grown a fucking garden I didn't grow a garden it didn't even occur to me to grow a garden yeah I had a yard I could have grown a garden in talk about cost effective and nourishing and the way that we think about de-stressing oh my god it would have been so so powerfully positive for me so I'm right there with you and I'm very much enjoying the transition that's been forced upon me because I mean, I will be totally honest in saying I really wasn't there with you until very recently. (laughs) This is a gift of pandemic. I mean, I've been aware, but I have not been, I have not been making my food with my hands in my kitchen three times a day for five or six people every day for two months in a decade that hasn't happened in a decade. And so one of the gifts has been to become very, you know, intimately involved in what we're eating. So I think that 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 has had a pretty big impact on my mood. Just the food I'm consuming and the way that I'm interacting with it has, um, just like you said, like there's, there's something about chopping. There's something about the textures and, and, you know, I definitely feel like it's the main time when I'm in a flow state. And like we, oh, we keep so learning great. more and more about how flow states are so integral to positive That's psychology. So they're so healing, and I I really didn't have that. It's I've been very sort of like there's so many areas of my life. I mean, it cracks me up to just you know I'm almost forty, and I keep like having these major aha light bulb moments, <laughs> and and one of them that keeps coming up, it's just the same lesson in a different area of life, which is. Stop focusing on the destination. Stop focus. It's not about getting the calories into your body at the cheapest price with the highest nutrient level. It's about participating in the process of of nourishing yourself. 
And that's true of your personal mental health. It's true of, of exercise. It's not about having done the exercise. It's about learning how to enjoy working with your body in a meaningful and productive and healthy way. <laughs> and and I, so I guess, you know, the, the long answer to your question is I fucking cook all day, man. That's what I do. <laughs> yes. I think it's amazing. It's so funny that America has all started baking bread, like that that's the huge thing to come out of it. Toilet paper scarcity and baking bread is so interesting. What phenomenon, unexpected phenomenon. so ridiculous. I've never baked bread. I'm never going to break bread, bake bread. It's like totally empty carbs. I'm all about veggies and like (laughs) healthy pasture raised meats and weird spices and herbs that I'm learning about and lots of legumes and things that are kind of low impact. But bread is just baffling. So is toilet paper. I had like, I had all these old bed sheets that I was just ready to just cut up. I was like, why is everybody freaking out? Let's yeah. just cut up the bed sheets. We'll wash them. It's not different than, than cloth diaper. What everybody freaking out about? Totally. And in Thailand, uh, we have uh, bum guns. So, so in Thailand, everybody was like, what? <laughs> Especially. I know. Well, and I just, it just shows that like, group think, you know, all the stuff that I studied in undergraduate school about sort of the, you know, in groups and out groups and social pressure and, and just the, the sheep mentality. I mean, I just, I mean, I see it with iPhones, right? There's just this whole, like, everybody's got to have a f- stupid iPhone. None of my, we don't have iPhone. I'm not getting iPhone. No, no kid needs an $1,000 phone. That is absolutely ridiculous. And yet, every kid has one. And, and I, like, look at these adults, and I would never say anything to them, but I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, save a village. You could, I mean, I just, and so the toilet thing... I have, I, I know people, I'm, in, I'm I'm not embarrassed to say, but I'm shocked to say that I know people who I love and respect who did the hoarding of rice and toilet paper and all these other things that I think at the end of the day, what it really expresses, um, you know, and to get sort of deep and existential is a, is a lack of faith in themselves and in others and in the universe to take care of them. Yeah, it's like this blatant expression of of fear that things are not going to be okay. Whether it's not being able to wipe your ass the way you prefer, or eat the food that you need to feel, you know, the relief that you're used to on a daily basis. But you know, my response, and not that I'm enlightened or you know emotionally advanced, I just don't. I just it did not. None of this has scared me, and and it's not scared me. I think because I I sort of have a broader view. My worldview is that like if a pandemic wiped half of us out, sure that'd be sad on an individual case to case basis. But so many of our world's worst problems would be resolved by this. Absolutely. I mean, like that's the, I I get what that sounds like to say out loud, and and I'm sure that I would catch flack if I was you know saying this on some large stage. But would that suck? Like what are is that the thing that people are scared of? like half the human population being wiped out by a pandemic because that has been productive in terms of wildlife and <laughs> just I, I think about the just the environmental impact, the carbon footprints, all of the things that would be immediately impacted for the better if even if I died and like people I've had this conversation with a few people they're like you'd be okay if like you and your kids died and I'd be like yeah, well if for the for the greater good of all for eternity yeah <laughs> like that's 
like that's I, I don't know it, it just has never and whatever I'm saying this from a mountaintop where I encounter no one and I see the ocean every day just you know <laughs> but it, it just hasn't freaked me out and so I've been bothered by how um fearful some of the members of my inner circle are it's been shocking yeah definitely we are so incredibly grateful that we made the intentional choice to get stuck in thailand we were supposed to uh, come home in, to america in april because we were supposed to be getting married in uh two weeks from now um oh wow. <laughs> congratulations and also um, congratulations on not getting married and being stuck there because that is way better than trying to get married in the United States right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's just, we're, we're on a small Island in Southern Thailand that you can only get to by boat. And, um, when, when everything first started going down, we were definitely, our, our families were so freaked out and they were t telling us desperately that they really wanted us to come home. Everybody was just like so scared and unsure. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's the right decision to stay in Thailand. Like, I think that this is the best place to wait out the apocalypse. So, we're, yeah, we're we're just and unbelievably you were happy we made that decision. Correct about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but every time we talk to our so families and friends, it's just like what a world of different experience. I mean, we're doing, uh, we're moving into a new house on tomorrow with a friend, and uh, we're, we're starting. We're, we're going to make a video of uh, digital nomads form like what is it cult utopia during lockdown or something of just we've started doing all of these uh healthy practices abundance uh, uh manifestation practices together as a group and uh just trying to like yeah create that sounds so amazing and i mean this is the kind of this is the kind of um thread that i think you know there's there's a, there's a small thin thread of people like us and I consider that to be anybody who questions I loved how you framed it as questioning because I I you know we're, we're in the final edit on my movie and the new editor came on and he was like okay so what's the quest and I was like for truth and he was like and what's the problem and I was like conditioning and that's like the whole movie in a nutshell yeah <laughs> like yeah. all of us are the people that I feel closest to who I have this sort of you know, on like long term, like we have like a long term connection where it's like, yeah, we speak the same language on like a soul level. They are people who are seeking answers beyond what they were told in the socialization of their of their youth. Right. Absolutely. Whatever their culture, Absolutely. whatever their religion, whatever their neighbors, whatever their family, whatever they were being told, they sense the 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 confusion there and their intuition has pointed them towards something bigger and greater which I felt from a very young age. I remember being like, I got to get the fuck out of here. No. <laughs> they act like they're not racist, but they are. They're all eating fast food all day. Like I saw these things clearly for what they were. That every time in my life when I've really had that sense of, or, or like I've been to go along with something and I, and I realized, wait, that's an externally referenced idea or direction. And I check in with myself about whether it aligns at all with my own internal values or direction. It just almost never does. Like my internal compass is so dramatically opposite from almost everything that I've been told and that our culture claims is true. And, and it's just sort of the outcome of inquiry. And you know, if you follow the, the thread 
to the very start, you, you find something so different than what you encounter along that whole way. And I think that you know, what you guys did in staying there, what I've done, and I mean, even down to this, I feel really a very, very serious pressure to like remarry. It's a very interesting thing that has, has never stopped happening. Like, since I've been do people say gone. this to you directly? People inquire. They're like, you know, um, so because whatever, I'm a, I'm an attractive, active, interesting. Everybody's just very shocked that I haven't like repartnered. And every time, like, I'll get down on myself and I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, man, I'm such a loser. Like, I, I can't. I'm just not good at like blending lives and families and drama. And then I go, I like save those. Like, I keep going. And I'm like, oh my god, that sounds so horrible. That's why I don't do it. Like, I don't want to blend my stuff in my home and my children into another family. And, and, and I, I just have that experience over and over again. And recently it's happened with the kids schools. They have all gone to very interesting charters or, or in Henry's case and Oliver's case recently, very interesting sort of alternative private schools. And, um, and I've, I've been given this message my whole life that, that, that public schools are in Los Angeles County are dangerous and bad and awful and you can't send your kids there. And, um, what? yeah, seriously, this is a very, I mean, it's a very elitist West side thing, but unfortunately that is where I was living and my kids were going to Waldorf school, which was a public school, but still there was just this idea that permeated our community that if you really love your kids, you figure out how to send them to a place where the people really love them and care about them. And it's not just the unions fighting the city. And anyway, this is a, this is something that echoed in my head and created a lot of stress for me because I don't have the money to keep my kids in private school. And all of a sudden, because of the pandemic, I was like, wait, why do I think that? Wait, that's not true. I went to public school and I'm doing just fine. <laughs> Like so many of the best people out there went to public school. Actually, my kid's dad went to private school and he's not doing all that great. <laughs> like, and so I, I just think that that position of question everything as a mantra to how to find your positions on stuff is, is, I mean, you know, that's, that's my, my movie and my. Yeah. Okay. My, wait. So when, when you started your movie and like seemingly started your research into addiction. I know you've always approached pretty much everything in life from a much more compassionate, empathetic place, but it sounds like you had a journey where you were accepting a bit more of the societal narrative of yeah, a, yeah. a bit of like addicts are bad. Um, yeah. When or, you started or I would say disease. I really, I, even though I didn't intellectually agree with that sort of from a scientific perspective, I knew the evidence didn't hold up that there was some gene or else we'd be eradicating those embryos. There's no gene for addiction. There's no disease. Um, and I understood that to be true, but because of my conditioning growing up in the South and people who drank too much were seen as scum, you know, they were low lives. They were, they were drunks and women who drank too much were not invited. Their, their families were not invited to our garden parties or, you know, they didn't, they didn't participate in, in, like I never saw adults drink, certainly never saw anybody do drugs. And so there was a very clear, if not explicitly stated, um, you know, sort of subtext of drugs and alcohol are extremely bad and if you use them, there's something super fucked up that is different about you and wrong with you. And so what was, what was really fascinating 
and this is sort of, you know, this is spoiler alert, everybody. Close your ears if you are really excited about finding out what is in my movie. <laughs> um, the thing that was really the most interesting about the whole process was that when Jonathan became a heroin addict as we were shooting this movie, um, I realized that my beliefs were so deeply ingrained in me that they had been the foundational organizing structure of how I'd come to believe everything about good and bad people. I mean, they were, they were so inextricable from how I saw everything that even with all the information I had on how there was nothing different about him than me or than my precious child that we'd had together or than any other person that I could pick out of a, le a line, I still believed there was. And I treated him in spite of having all of the best experts a phone call away with all of these alternative approaches, I really still treated him like he was a piece of shit and to be blamed. And, um, and so I guess like my, my intention was to approach my brother's death with this curiosity about what could we, what could we learn what could we know? What could we update our, our sort of software with so that these kinds of deaths can be prevented? And then when I had the opportunity to use all of that information um, in my own partnership, I failed to. I mean, I eventually did, but my first knee-jerk reaction was like an intervention and send him to rehab and tell him, you know, ultimatums and like, you're going to lose your family if you don't quit using drugs. And just all of the same stuff that I was making a movie about in, I was making a movie to tell people not to do the very things that I did. So that's one of the really tricky things about the inquiry is that when you're so deeply conditioned with anything, I see this a lot in sort of what I call the recovering um, uh, evangelical Christian community or the recovering Catholic community or people who were exposed to really specific dogmas, um, of any kind. I mean, race, racism, <laughs> I mean, I see it in my, in my older brothers who, who still present this, this level of racism that I wasn't exposed to. We had different moms. Um, and it becomes part of your, I mean, it's like this, this part of your lens that you can't take away. You just have to still see through it and then correct for it after. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of went off on a tangent there, but I, I did try to be broad-minded, but I also was affected very, very much by what I had, what, what the people I had grown up around had shown me about people who struggled with substance use issues, and which of course they were called addicts and alcoholics and they were a different kind of person than a regular person. Yes. Which is true. Was it your trip to Mexico that enabled you to switch perspectives? You know, I think that the real turning point for me, the very first trip to Mexico, I went to Mexico many times over that next few years. Um, that The trip to Mexico, my first one, where I did not participate in any psychedelic healing at all, I, I always feel like I need to clarify that they're <laughs> all of my various spiritual and um, sort of ex expansion driving experiences were not all about doing um, various types of psychedelics. But the first trip to Mexico was the first time that I had really let go of any hope that I could have an impact on Jonathan's life. I, just by leaving the country while he was still an IV heroin user and my children were being cared for by a dear friend, 
Um, I was, I, I think I did most of the work of the transformation by even agreeing to go on that trip. Um, it would never have been something I would have felt comfortable doing even a few months before that. Um, and you know, the fact that it was gifted to me and that one of my experts was insisting that I go, um, even under all of that pressure, I wouldn't have been able to go. And so I think that it's, it's interesting. The moment of real transformation happened on the top of one of the Toltec pyramids in Teotihuacan when we'd all gone off. There was probably about eight of us from all over the world. I mean, one of my dear friends now, Yorin, um, I'm going to forget where he lives, Oslo, maybe, um, and people from everywhere. We'd gone off and spent an hour or two sort of wandering around, feeling the energy of a place that was that old, that had held you know, the feet where we were standing of so many thousands of people thousands of years ago. And, and to just, um, like breathe into that and just see what came up, right? Just what, what do you notice rising in you? And, um, what rose up in me and, oh God, I just was so tough at that point. I was like such a tomboy. I had put on a lot of weight kind of on purpose. It was a protective barrier. Um, I was very tough and I was like, I don't know. I had really, really blocked away my feminine and my, my emotional side. And I found myself in this group that of people I don't know at the top of this pyramid and like what felt like the cheesiest, like after school special moment, bursting into tears and saying, I just realized that the only person I can save is myself. Wow. And wow. I really had never understood that in the way that I understood that there that there's just this ocean of people that I'd been trying to save with my movie and this person who I loved so much and wanted to be okay, who I was throwing my whole, all my sanity and my health away, trying to help get off heroin. And there was this person, this body, my, my vessel that I feel that I had completely abandoned in the process of that emotionally, physically, spiritually, I had abandoned myself in this pursuit of, you know, saving everybody else from losing a brother like I did or saving Jonathan from his demons, which only he could face. And so that was the real like, aha moment for me. Um, and it really, something big happened in that moment that allowed me to start moving slowly toward truth really slowly like that was a big truth but there were thousands more little truths that kept being revealed once I let that one rise to you know from my subconscious where it had always lived anyway up into my conscious mind and I've really become an advocate for that kind of transformational experience that can help when you really go to the other side of the world you guys get it like it really does when you change everything new parts of what was always a part of you get an opportunity to rise up through, you know, the rhythms and, and ruts of your daily life. If you're doing the same thing every day. And for me going back and forth to Mexico, um, I also just travel a lot within California. I have to, I have to change the scene in order to change my, my interaction with that scene a lot. Like I bought myself a hotel room for Saturday night um, in Ventura. I've never stayed in Ventura. I have no nothing to do in Ventura. I just need to go someplace I haven't seen before because what that does for me is trigger a new set of thoughts. It's like tasting something new for the first time. 
Yeah, I'd say and, we're like totally um, addicted to that. Like it's uh definitely yeah. being being semi nomadic and traveling the world. Quarantine has been hard oh. and again it does feel like, oh my god, what a silly uh first world privileged complaint to be like, Oh god, we were supposed to like be in Europe now or whatever the situation is. Oh but we're trying to like we've combated this by uh we're moving tomorrow for the fourth time since March. <laughs> so like that's kind of our our mini our mini way of uh, traveling that's the world so is exciting. moving around this small is island so- a bunch of times. I'm telling you, people ask somebody asked me, I think it was my money guy, um which sounds like I have a lot of money. I actually have no money, but he's supposed to help me to learn how to save it instead of spend it all on really frivolous things because I just don't give a shit about money. I wish I did. But anyway, my money guy um was asking if I thought that Malibu would be a long-term thing so that we could lock that this rent into the budget. And I was like, Alex. <laughs> I was like, how many years have we worked together? He was like, I don't know, like six. I was like, have I ever stayed still? And he was like, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, because moving is a way of changing your story. I mean, I, I even do the thing where like, whatever, for the last two years I had really, really short bleach blonde hair. Because I saw this picture of Charlize Theron and I was like, I would like to be her this year. <laughs> and then I thrown it out. And now it's half black because my roots are like three inches long and half white. And I love it. It's wild. And we can change whatever elements of our story we want to. I mean, we can, right? Again, like first world privileges here. I just want to couch all of this in the fact that I realize how incredibly fortunate I am to be able to change any parts of my life when people are totally stuck in whatever they've been born into. But with the hand that I've been given, I feel like almost an obligation. It almost feels like a pressure to do something wild and wonderful as often as I possibly can because I can. And there are people who can't. And so do that in a way that that you can share with other people and inspire your children to inspire other people's children who might not otherwise know that these things are options. I, I, so, yeah, I don't know where we that more. That. Just, yeah. Anytime <laughs> people talk about like, Oh, you know, privilege problems or whatever, then it's like, yeah, man. And, and how, how better could I show up and respect my privilege than by taking full advantage of it at every possible moment by uh, using these advantages to experience and create magic. Right. I mean, I think all the time as a creator, as a, as a creative and as a writer, um, about Virginia Woolf's a room, what is it? A room of her own. Now I can't remember the damn title of the book, but it's like a room, a room of one's own or something like that in which essentially the argument is it is very hard to have, you know, unbridled and uninterrupted and unmolested creative thoughts come forth and work themselves out in a life of, you know, tragedy or poverty. You need some space for that. And I think, thank God she wrote that. And thank God so many incredible writers and filmmakers and, and, and architects and painters have had space enough to create. Look at what comes of that privilege. And what if they didn't do anything with it? What if they sat around going, oh, I shouldn't paint. That would be bougie. Yeah. We would have none of some of the most amazing, inspiring things that anybody can go and enjoy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, the answer is Mexico. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Mexico was, you know, and it, and it really threw me back into work that I'd already been passionate about in my early 20s when I was an undergraduate. So what, what type of 
psych- you were studying psychedelics and psychology as an undergraduate? Yeah, so I found out about this place called the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is um, it's actually a graduate school uh, in San Francisco, but they started a, a, about a year before I found out about it. I had always looked at it for a graduate program. They did have psychedelic studies. It was, it was um, not a clinical program at that point because there were no legal FDA studies being conducted, which now there are, so they do have a legal psychedelic research program, graduate program right now. Um, but it was started by a guy named Stanislav Grof, who is sort of um, famous for being the first psychotherapist to test um, LSD in a clinical setting. And what he found, which I, I found to be, um, and I wasn't, a, I wasn't a psychonaut, as people call it. I didn't do psychedelics when I was in high school. My, my curiosity did not come from a personal affinity or attraction to psychedelics. They actually scared me. I thought they were very... I like their relationship to consciousness and our grip on the ego and and self was really, really interesting and fascinating because what Stanislav Grof found was that when the default mode network, he didn't use this language is my me patching together language from current research and Stanislav Grof. But basically when the default mode network goes offline, which is the part of the brain that is constantly deciding whether every piece of stimuli in the room is safe or dangerous, right? Like, in a given day, we process millions of pieces of information. When that goes offline, all the things that you hide and lie to yourself about and lie to others about or just misinterpret or it just all all the gymnastics of the mind are kind of dismantled. And so in a therapeutic relationship, what happens is this this level of intimacy, this total vulnerability and trust, and it actually... It, it softens the, the patient and forms this different type of bond and openness that usually takes closer to five years is the estimation with wow. certain psychedelics. And I do not work with LSD. Um, I'm still a bit, I have a, I have a tentative relationship with it. I haven't done it very much in my life. Um, but it's just not one of the ones that I work with. Um, what do you work with? So the, the ones that the one that I specialize in, I always just sort of giggle as I say it. People are like, what? That's a thing. Um, is the the crystallized venom of the Sonoran Desert Bufo toad. We've just learned about this. It's a big thing on the island where we're that we're staying on. How do they get it there? Are you sure it's not combo? How do they get it? Because it only exists in the Sonoran Desert of Mexico. Yeah, I mean it's a we've ta- I've met a couple people who are well like I've had a lot of conversations with one guy who's a white dude from Texas, and he. Well, uh, then he's that's why that's how because it's in Texas. You can get him in Texas and Mexico. Yeah, he said. I mean, he well, he first did it in Mexico, and then yeah, he he had a calling to um, share it with others, and he says that he gets it from a guy in Mexico. But we haven't done it because we've been yeah. skeptical that it's actually real. <laughs> Well, if he's from Texas, I would believe him. So there's, I mean, if I met a guy from Detroit who was telling me he had some in Thailand, I'd be like, fuck you. No way. <laughs> uh, but, but Texas is, I mean, you, you can actually harvest the venom in Texas and in, in northern Mexico. So that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, you're still welcome to be skeptical. But I, I also had the same experience. I had done multiple different psychedelics. My first and most powerful experience was with ayahuasca in Mexico, um, with a healer. Um, and it was, 
I mean, whatever happened on the mountain in Teotihuacan was was exponentially multiplied by the experience with ayahuasca. It would take me two days to explain the the potency of that experience. But but then I did um, actually with a with a man who lives currently in Colombia, but uh, usually resides in Costa Rica. He got trapped in Colombia. Um, I met him in Mexico at the ceremony, the ayahuasca ceremony, um, which I just. I like to say this in any public setting, which I did alone because everybody should do ayahuasca alone because anybody who's trying to give you ayahuasca with a group is a fraud. Anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is it's not a... a fraud. That's a But it's a deeply, deeply personal experience. And if you are sharing a space with other people who are dealing with their own trauma and their own history, it has a major impact on your ability to feel safe and process your own stuff See, this resonates so much with me i've always thought it was it sounded just absolutely insane to do something like ayahuasca in a group in an unfamiliar place it's not, like it's just but, like I yeah we've been like told by other people i mean we just we had um two of my, two of our friends who actually just visited us in thailand they had been working at an ayahuasca retreat center in costa rica for the last couple of years and they did it in a, in a group thing and everybody talks about it like oh the, the, the that seems like the only option like yeah it's not it's not it's very geared toward white tourists who want to talk, go back to their community and talk about their group experience and who want to bond with other people in a social setting usually the people who do these group God, things what that doesn't sound like it has anything in common with ayahuasca like there's a zero venn diagram of bonding with people and in ayahuasca there's or going to a retreat. It's a vac- people turn it into a vacation. They go to Colombia. They go to Peru. They go all over the world to do this medicine, which should never be done in a group. I mean, there's no legitimate shaman, and I. I mean, that's that sounds so dumb. I hate even saying that. But there's nobody I know that I that I have a deep and meaningful relationship with as a clinician and a healer, who would ever serve any medicine in a group. You that's, cannot. That's fantastic to you hear. Can, yeah, you will really- get an experience. But, but you have to understand how much money they're making. So if you're getting $1,500 per person, if you do 10 people at a time as opposed to one each day, there is a monetary component to this. And it's actually a conversation that a lot of the medicine workers and I have on a pretty regular basis about how many charlatans and snake oil salesmen and dangerous people are operating in this space because of the lack of regulation and standard of care and how ready we are for there to be some actual regulations and some clinical guidelines so that these people who are doing this, because I, I don't, I, I will say that I don't think that people are having, they're not being traumatized, right? Like it's not, they're not leaving their worse off. They're just not having, they're not getting what you can get from the experience because you should be with a guide who understands the nuances of what's happening to you and who can be there to support you in whatever ways are needed, which for some people can be very, very, very hands-on. It can be a high touch process. And for some people it's not. You know, it's just it, it, it does have a really deep and lasting psychological impact um, when done the right way. And it's really important to have people around you and serving you in, in those settings that have a deep awareness of sort of what what is beneficial and what's not beneficial in the process. And so many of the people out there are just giving people drugs because, of course, when you give somebody a drug, they have an experience. And I just, yeah, so I can definitely make recommendations to people. I also, back to the Bufo Toad, um, I, that's what I use myself. Maybe, now it's down to maybe like once every other year, maybe once a year. 
Um, I always say it's kind of like a shower just because you took one doesn't mean you don't have to do it again. <laughs> like you, it's a thing that you have to kind of repeat to clean yourselves out. Um, but, but I also have a really strong intuition that every person has a, a medicine on this planet that is geared toward their chemistry and their psychology. And it is not what works for me is not going to necessarily be what works for others. And so there's a lot of situations where um, clinicians who don't practice the toad will send them to me. And there are lots of situations where, you know, people are interested in a medicine that I don't think is right for them. And I tell them they should do something else. And I send them to a clinician who practices with that medicine. So why did Bufu resonate with you? Um, so Michael Pollan, he wrote a book called, um, how to to change change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And in that book, he calls the toad, the, the Mount Everest of psychedelic experiences. And I knew that going in and I am an overachiever. And so there was some (laughs) ego part of me. I mean, this is just the honest truth. There was some ego part of me that was like, this is my drug, man. This is my medicine. I'm going to, and, and I, and then there was another part of me that was like, this is sacred stuff and you need to check whatever that is at the door and see what really happens. And that part of me was truly terrified. I was completely terrified on the one hand that I was going to completely fracture all of the parts of, of my understanding of myself and my place in the world in such a way that I would never be able to experience the, the positive parts of my life again. I don't know why this is, it just felt so big and so um, wild um, because the descriptions I'd heard of it were so insufficient because <laughs> nobody can really explain it. Um, but I, I did it and I was so scared. Oh my God, I was so scared, you guys. I just, I'm scared of everything. That's something that doesn't come across when I speak or when I live. A lot of people are really surprised to hear that. Yes, but you definitely really come off with- as a badass. Yeah, I know. It's so funny because my, my, my body worker who I've been going to for 12 years, who I adore, she's amazing, another mother of four, badass woman. She was asking me about something like two weeks ago and she was like, oh, how was that? I was like, I was terrified. Mara, I was literally shaking. I, it was all I could do to not get drunk the night before just to not think about how scary it was going to be. And she said, you were scared? And I was like, yeah, I had to speak publicly at an event um, for a large community of awesome people. And I was terrified about it. Um, And she said, I have never thought that you struggled with social anxiety or fear. And I was like, constantly, all the time. And she started to cry. And she said, Becca, I don't think there's anything. I did not think it was possible to love you more. But knowing that you do all the things you do and that you're scared all the time makes you that much more amazing. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. yeah, man. So, <laughs> so true. But I, but so I think it's important in a conversation where I'm, you know, sounding confident and like I have this great sense of direction and everything's figured out on my mind in Malibu. I'm fucking terrified constantly. Like I have, like, I don't answer my phone um, just because of that. And so that going into the Bufo Toad was very present with me. Um, and what, what came out of it was the self that I identify with, that is my jail, right? That, that has all of the insecurities of my individuation being called all the things I was called and the fears of, of you know, that we develop over time. Um, 
that whole self and all of the positive parts of that self that could even observe and describe an experience dissolved completely. I died and the death was, um, it removed all fear of death, which is, I think our ultimate fear underlies a lot of um, what drives our, our conscious activities because our subconscious is, I mean, from how we cross the street to how we eat food to when we go to bed, it's related to our health, which is ultimately related to longevity, which is related to death. And this experience was so much how I imagine that death will be, this just ceasing to identify, ceasing to be able to notice whether or not I identify. I, I always tell people the ayahuasca was the moment, the, the, the pyramid in Teotihuacan was the moment where I realized that there was a me worth saving and that that was my job, just me. I'm Forget the kids, forget, if I'm not focusing on me, there was this very big emergence of the, the importance of me. And then the ayahuasca was a step further. It was this just, I mean, I just felt physically connected to every single person, rock, thought. I couldn't differentiate at one portion of it, whether I was my mother or myself. Like I couldn't, I was my mom, but I was also me. But I couldn't tear us apart because we were exactly the same. And there was this sense of if I was being a brat to her, I was being a brat to me. <laughs> yeah. And if I was loving her and appreciating her with the Bufo Toad, it wasn't me or all. It was nothing. There's nothing. And that sounds terrifying to people who haven't experienced it in, in the way that it. there's this warm golden um, fog that that you sort of pass into that swallows it all and you're left with nothing but it's not what we fear when we think of having nothing it's this beautiful warm nothing that makes everything you've ever worried about for one moment shrink away into nothing and so when you emerge from it your perspective on things like for me things that sort of Hold on one second. Let me let Daisy in. She's scratching at the door. Things for me that sort of bog down my consciousness, right? Like, like, oh, I shouldn't eat that because I'm going to, you know, put on five pounds if I make this a pattern. Or I don't have enough money this month. I need to take on additional work. How am I going to do that? Or um, I'm exhausted. Maybe I should go on a fucking dating app and find a partner. <laughs> or like these day-to-day -day thoughts. Um, they just go away. They go away. And they like come forever? up. And I, I mean, they go away for, no, no, they don't. That's why I repeat it. And actually I'm due for a, for a dose. I've been doing it a lot during the quarantine with clients and I have not myself, um, I, my shaman's trapped in Colombia. Um, so, and I, and I do only like to do it. I, I practice what I preach. I would never do it alone. I would never do it, um, with somebody who's not, extremely experienced with the medicine. Um, and so, yeah, so I, it goes away for, it, it lasts 15 minutes. It feels like an eternity. You wake up and you feel like you've probably been asleep for three days, but only 15 minutes has passed on the clock and you feel totally normal. There's no half-life, right? Like this, so there's no sort of coming out of it slowly. And then you have the rest of your day or your evening. And what 
has always been so remarkable to me is just how pure and white and clear the change is. The change is, is, and it's none of the things that I worried about. It's just this, like, I, I feel like it's like when, when the light hits, you know, ripples on the water just, just right and everything just turns blinding for a second in this beautiful way. There's this sharpness to it. Um, and it stays for a while. You know, these thoughts will rise as thoughts do. They think themselves. Our mind is constantly trying to keep us safe by re- having these recurring thoughts that are tied to danger in our past. And they would rise and I would I would just be able to laugh them away. Like, oh my gosh, that is because of this experience I had when I was a child and it's no longer useful or productive or relevant. And it would just that thought, that boat, I like to think of my mind like a river, that boat would just pass on by without me jumping on it and like getting engaged with it. Um, so I, I also don't recommend it for most people. It is the Mount Everest. It is deeply destabilizing if you don't have a foundation of who you are. Like I was very well by the time I decided to make that leap. Um, it was not the first psychedelic I tried and and I and I thought about it long and hard before I decided to do it. Most people I don't think it would be therapeutic for. It would be uh, wild and interesting, but to have a therapeutic effect, um, it's very specific. So that's my that's my main that's my main jam. I also work with psilocybin. I'm very very um, excited about ibogaine. I'm not fully comfortable doing it um, without a nurse and another clinician present, but I began to help people detox off um, opiate addiction and even meth addiction and cocaine addiction, I think is great. Um, and I'm looking forward to being more proficient in that. The ayahuasca is something that I have a, have a weird relationship with it. And I'm not the only clinician who does. It was so sacred and special to me. And it was also given to me in such um, a safe space, an indigenous space with a ceremonial healer that I have felt a bit of the imposter syndrome considering taking that on as a, you know, American research oriented evidence-based clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm warming up to it because I see ayahuasca being used so fucking irresponsibly and people bastardizing the potency of its potential impact with their gossip. I mean, like people are talking about this all over Instagram. They're like posting about it. And I'm like, this is like, this is, pure trauma therapy. This is deep stuff, guys. This is not a yoga retreat. And so I feel like since the tides have turned so, made it so cliche that somebody needs to step forward in, in our culture and start to reclaim, um, reclaim it for the, the proper use, which is as medicine. Yeah. Um, so that, and then I guess what else is there? There's combo. I've not trained in combo. I do have a guy here in Malibu who wants me to do it. I'm not really interested in doing combo um what are the others like i said don't work with those Combo's the one with the three holes in your skin yeah and it's not really psychedelic from what i understand it's It's just venom right yeah this one i've never understood so you do it you get pricked three times it's like a venom and then you purge yeah they burn you you puke like this sounds terrible it doesn't it sounds like who, who yeah, why would anyone volunteer for that? Yeah. I totally 
I'm with you guys. It's this kind of the same way I feel about LSD just because the, the and I've, I've just had, I've only had three experiences on LSD and they were so not healing. They, they just weren't. Yeah. I feel like LSD is so more it's, recreational than anything. I mean, it's it interesting. Is. It's fascinating, but at the end of the day, totally. it's, it's yeah. a, it's a, you know, it's a man-made, uh, recreational drug that has been used. I, I can see how originally it's how we got to using these compounds, but but yeah, the combo I don't get. I do understand, like, sort of immunologically, if that's even a word, um, how it's working. What it does is it's such an attack on your immune system that your immune system goes into hyper overdrive. And so other symptoms that you may have been experiencing related to, I don't know, respiratory stuff or vision stuff or weird, any other kind of sort of physical ailment, um, the, the pitch is that because of the hyper overdrive response to the venom, everything else gets a dose of additional white blood cell action too. Um, maybe I have that totally wrong. Obviously I'm not an expert. No, but the one I'm most excited about, if I can just like shine a spotlight on it and that the FDA studies are finally being done in great numbers because the first preliminary ones were so impressive that they, this is a lot of this I think is in the Michael Pollan book. I can't remember. No, it's not. Um, I have an expert talking about it in my movie. That's how I know this. Um, but they're so impressive. And the, the MDMA sessions that are being done with um, people with fatal cancer diagnoses and severe trauma survivors of war, like the PTSD soldiers and other. So what they're seeing is sort of just an improvement across the, the list of, of presenting issues, depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, focus, aggression, you name it, um, that has just never been seen before with anything. Antidepressants, exercise, combination of antidepressants and exercise, talk therapies, you know, just everything that they've ever tried in any combination has failed to, you know, hold a candle to what the MDMA sessions, a single MDMA session and a single psilocybin session are showing these incredible results. So I'm excited mainly about these things becoming more mainstream. I, I, as somebody who, of course, has been a cheerleader and an enthusiast for a long time and sort of picked back up again in the last, you know, seven or so years, my hope is that with the legitimizing by the FDA, which, of course, you know, our, our sheeple Americans have got to see FDA studies in order to believe that anything is legit, um, that, that, that it will become so widely accepted that people will actually start healing with these powerful natural compounds that are on the planet just like foods with vitamins to help us reset our minds and hearts and souls so that we can interact better with one another and with ourselves and and you know do better work on this planet and I don't know if that's ridiculously optimistic I tend to be that way but mm -hmm. My hope is that over the next 10 years, the number of people who are interested in and have access to these medicines, when indicated, I don't think they're right for everybody. Like my business card says at the very bottom, it's like psychedelic assisted um, treatments available when indicated because it's just not for everyone. But my hope is that it becomes so much more readily available and, and better understood because it has been conflated with recreational drug use. So are there certain uh, issues that different drugs are meant or medicines are, that are meant to treat? Like what is Bufos? What, what, what do people send their clients to you for? What's going on with their clients? That's a great question. Um, I think a couple different things. Um, one is that they have 
already done maybe psilocybin or MDMA according to the MAPS protocol and they've experienced major expansion and their life has changed for the better and they've been healing for three years and they're ready for the next thing and they're just ready to take it one step further. The other one is, um, that's really, I mean, I almost feel like there's that and then there's also the sort of experienced psychonaut, people who have been into psychedelics for a very long time but who are older or who have become more responsible, who don't want to use drugs recreationally in doses that they can't predict, who want to do it in a way that's um, exciting still for them. There's still an adventure involved in it, but that's controlled and safe and therapeutic. So those are two populations. And the last one I would say is, um, trying to think of how I would describe this most recent client I had. She's just a wild heart. She's dissatisfied with the ways that we talk about things and see things. She doesn't fit in on the planet. She needs, um, on some level, a confirmation that her intuitions about how big and weird this all is, is are, are right. That her sort of inability to fall in line with the mainstream is beautiful and good. And um, it's really affirming for that type of person, for the outsider who has been told that the way that they see things is wrong for so long that part of them believes it. This, this affirms that all the people who think that, you know, three meals a day and 40 hours a week and this much money in the bank are really the crazy ones. Yes. Um, and so I think that those are kind of the main populations for the Bufo. For the psilocybin and the MDMA, which I also do probably the same amount of, um, Anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, all of the ways that that unresolved issues from our childhood, our adolescence, our young adulthood, our, all the phases of life, all the ways that those tangled up knots of unresolved emotion are still, the way that those are impacting our daily responses to things, um, I get people sent to me for, for that. So, for instance, you know, somebody who's been struggling with getting on and off anxiety drugs for 10 years and really just does not, they know that the pharmaceuticals don't work and that they're just masking the problem, they'll get sent to me. Um, so psychiatrists often send people who, who want to, who are having some sort of recurring psychological issue, um, but that don't want to do the traditional pharmaceuticals that haven't worked in the past. Um, and a lot more, a lot more psychiatrists, even at that that level, are sending people. There are a lot of psychiatrists, medical doctors who understand brain chemistry, who are excited about what this is offering their clients. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, I think you know, it, <laughs> I, I I like to say just you know, people just just people need this. <laughs> just all people need something. Not all people need all things, and some would be a bad match. The other sort of thing we look at is how strong is their attachment to their story? Mm. Because these things really, really shake up your um, ability to grip that story, whatever your story is. And for people who really would fall apart without their story, um, the stronger, you know, sort of Mount Everest versions are not best because that will, that'll destabilize them. So something gentle and, um, sort of one of the empathogens like the MDMA would be best for them because even mushrooms can sort of, you know, 
you, you would come back questioning a lot of your own perspectives if you are rigidly hanging on to any story that you acquire on this planet. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you figure out how hard someone is holding on to their story or whether they are psychologically ready to let go? Like when it would be beneficial uh, for them or I think it's an intuition. I think it's, um, and when I talk about intuition, I don't mean, you know, divination or magic. I think I've just worked with so many people at this point in so many different settings. And I, you know, when you go to graduate school for psychology, you do all these dyads, you watch all these videos of other people's therapeutic sessions, and you get a sense of um, people's uh, openness just from being in a room with them. And, you know, there's ways that you can sort of test their their rigidity in conversation as you're doing the preparation work for the medicine work um and and it's pretty I guess I don't ever have a problem going oh that's not the right medicine for them and this is what they need I do find that people are usually wrong they'll come with an idea that they want to do psilocybin and I will say you need to do MDMA first and once you do that we'll see about the psilocybin, but maybe we'll do three MDMA sessions before we do psilocybin and maybe we'll never do it because that'll really um, resolve a lot of your, of the, you know, symptoms that they're arriving to, to address. But yeah, it's just intuition. It's like that subconscious evaluation of probably a hundred different points of data from how they sit to how they talk to the tone of voice that they deliver the talking in all of that. Fascinating. Fascinating. Do you feel like, Jen, do you feel like you can intuitively know whether somebody's going to be able to handle, say, mushrooms? I don't know because I think I might be a bit blinded by (laughs) how much I I think they're amazing. It's this that I I want. Amazing. Yeah. You know how evangelicals evangelize and they want you to understand the power of Christ and they really, really feel it and believe it and want you to get it and you just would never and you just would never. Like there's just no world in which that's the solution for you. Yeah. I have to remind myself the medicines that I work with draw that kind of visceral revulsion and dismissal from people yeah there are people who look at the work I do and they think that I'm that I'm um you know a a dressed up drug dealer and there are people who believe that what I do is demonic and or at the very least ridiculous you know yeah (laughs) and so and so I think that one of the the things that I that 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 gives me um some relief when I look at people like my mother who my mother knows what I do um it was a very slow uh, reveal over the last six years or so where I've been like, you remember when I used to be really interested in this stuff? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, six months later, like, I tried that for myself. <laughs> Meanwhile, this is all happening after the fact. I'm already retraining with, with people to do the work myself. And then, you know, sometime years after I had started really engaging in the work actively, um, and abundantly, I was like, you know, I think I'm, con- I'm going to consider sharing what I've learned about this with other people. And then eventually it's like, this is how I make money. And the last time I was in Nashville, um, I had a number of clients um, to come do medicine work at the house that we were renting. My kids all know what I do. They call me Mama Shaman, which I think is adorable <laughs> and I love. 
but um, but it's sacred. And my mom got to see some of my clients come and go, and she got to see them come again the next week for the follow up sessions, and she got to see the gratitude and the light. and the connection and the warmth and the changes. And so, you know, she's in a position of having it sort sort of interface. She didn't really have a choice. But I just think that a lot of people of a certain generation, which is my mom's generation, our parents' generation, they're never going to be able to see this as anything other than evangelical Christianity, right? That's just going to be where they are. So I've learned the lesson with food and environmentalism that – like for especially when I was younger, I tried so hard to be a crusader and just thought that if I was loud enough that I could convince everybody to be like me. And, you know, I, I, my mom was certainly one to tell me, like, I should just lead by example because otherwise people are going to close their ears. But if they just are seeing me with no pressure, then like right. the way I, my choices right. are inspirational. And we have gotten multiple people who have reached out because we talk about um, we talk about this theme on our podcast a lot we've had experts and different um various perspectives on and and yeah we just talk about psilocybin in particular we've had we've had people reach out and say you know either they've done it for the first time because of this podcast or they're looking to do it and we've had people in my parents generation reach out and say yeah because of this podcast they're now uh going to do mushrooms that's that's pretty cool (laughs) well dude send them my way because uh, that is that is, I would love to work more with that age group specifically. Maybe um, I, can I don't. Send my mom your way. <laughs> I would love that. She knows who I am, so I would I would love that. And even just for a conversation, because I think a really great place to start is what I just call a discovery session. Because people don't know anything about this. All they know is what they've heard through the grapevine and whatever circle they run in or whatever their siloed information on their social media feed is, or whatever the perspective of their specific news source is. And so just having an open and honest, we were doing panels for a long time that were really, really well attended for people to just sort of, you know, tease apart the, the myth and the, the scare, the scare stuff from, you know, Oh, these are drugs. And, and from the totally false over-advertising of it as being this cure-all. Like, it's great. It also needs to be um, used in conjunction with all the other normal stuff that people have to do. Like, you can still be on antidepressants and exercise and go to rehab and do all these other things that are, um, as a combination therapy, going to make it more effective for whatever it is. But, yeah, it's hard. I I still, you know, I find myself um, not telling people in situations where it would be totally safe to say it. I will say, oh, I'm a filmmaker. Or I'll say, oh, I run an agency. Which, I mean, those two things are true, but my calling is rooted in in all I've learned about healing our, our hearts and minds with what the earth has already provided. And that's, you know, now becoming a journey about food, which I'm super excited to connect with you more on because it sounds like you are a super amazing resource for that. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about it. But the medicines, I mean, the medicines are just so incredibly powerful. My, my company, which doesn't really exist in the public yet, it's called Meta, which I'm sure you guys know what that means. It's, I mean, the act of Meta, it's, it's loving kindness, but the act of Meta is sort of turning inward away from all the noise of our culture and our upbringing and um, listening to that clear, quiet voice of truth inside of us. And I want to create this network of people around the world who can help people to access medicine and to get what I consider to be um, much more holistic mental health 
um, treatment and do this in a whole new way outside of offices that feel sterile and um, have relationships that last a long time and are not completely clinical and sort of reimagine what mental health looks like. And then there's another arm of that, which is called meta natural or meta psychedelics. I can't remember. I have a guy who's helping me with the websites. Um, but hopefully within the next few months, both of these will be up because there's such a demand for sort of the, the mental health, a mental, a new mental health model that works and integrates all the parts of who we are as complex people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Yeah, what an exciting time to be alive. I know. I, I feel that way a lot. I don't know that everybody feels that way, but I uh, it is exciting, and I can't wait to come and see you guys. I really, really, really want to do that so soon. And it's my, you know, my 14 months in Southeast Asia got thwarted by this damn pandemic. We were planning to leave on June 30th. Oh, wow. Well, uh, being stuck at a beach or sea view house in... Malibu is a pretty not. solid alternative. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I had a couple yeah, questions. Go ahead. Well, do you have any experience or knowledge on ketamine and uh, any? I do. Yeah. I have pretty strong feelings about ketamine. Um, I don't mess with it. I don't recommend it. I believe that it is yet another trend and accoutrement to a lifestyle obsessed with, I'm getting better every day in every way, and this is going to help me. It does not have any long-lasting effects. It does has not been sufficiently studied. It is a horse tranquilizer, which makes you feel great for a little while. So, I, you know, I'm I'm glad that I don't know any of your listeners because I would probably catch some shit for that because there are people who fucking swear by it. Well, we um, had one of our very first episodes was with one of the leading Australian researchers on the convergence of psychiatry and psychedelics. And while I think his interests lie more with... Um, psilocybin and lsd he is currently or as of uh, i guess a year and a half ago he was doing clinical trials with ketamine and depression and um yeah my, my understanding of it and i am not i'm not i don't have any strong emotional attachments to it one way or the other i find it you know maybe exciting as a possible treatment for serious uh like you know canatonic like depressional states uh and it seems to have some promise there um, yes, I agree with you. That's the only there's a that, that's one of the indications that it seems to have some really serious promise. Um, but go ahead, yeah. Uh, and that's why I was just curious because I know it's not a, a psychedelic as no, as like what we've been talking about. Um, you know, it's very yeah. different in its method of action. And I'm just curious if you had any insight into it as well. Cause, yeah, I so I have a lot of clients. I have this sort of like uh, exhaust exhaustion with it because there's so many ketamine clinics that because they can charge insurance and because they're uh, very very right now they're popping up everywhere and they are very very trendy and I get a lot of clients who come from there with worse depression than they went in with and I'm not sure you know because it's really just sort of just started happening over the last year even over the last nine months I don't know whether that is a a a reality sort of a response related to an expectation that didn't get met because it was oversold because of what was promised so it's really hard for me to tell all I know is that there are people who had an expectation of a level of healing that was not delivered at all to the point where they went on a search for um, more 
potent and substantial and you know well that's that's part of my concern with it is is you know when being around people who use different drugs recreationally like psychedelics and then you see the difference between the affect and the experience and the 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 retrospection of of say using psilocybin versus somebody who does ketamine there's usually a, a very clear difference in the recreational users and one's oh god one's I one's mean, like kind of positive and then the other's like ugh, dark, like up dark, like dark, yeah dark, like near cocaine kind of Very, usage of like just it is habitual so people, yeah yes constant use and total total um inability to reach any states of um even what i would consider kind of like flat nine line normal emotion but to to even rise above that they need more ketamine it's, it's, you know, not highly addictive in the same sense as like heroin or nicotine or something like that. But in a lifestyle, I, you know, from my 20s living in Los Angeles, the people I knew who were using ketamine regularly were people I did not ever want to be around. Um, so there's also sort of the shadow of that experience with it. And, you know, I, I, anything that, that rises into prominence with that rapid, and I don't know if it's just L.A. I imagine the rest of the country doesn't have ketamine clinics popping up every way. L.A. is just like that. It just what you know, whether it's whether it's green juice or keto or whatever. We it starts here. It goes Trend, over. Kill trends and go it spreads, hard but, in L.A. Well, I think you're actually oh, you sort of just alluded so to it earlier. And this is kind of my next question was like, I, it seems to me like a huge barrier of entry for these types of therapies to really gain a hold is going to be the insurance uh industry and the rehab industry right. which at this point have to be i mean huge lobbies and the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry it's yeah. much harder to regulate and 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 make money off of this yeah, kind of so therapy a couple of things related to that yeah and this is a conversation that we as clinicians talk about all the time we really we really have most of us have a sliding scale which goes all the way down to zero for people who are you know indicated as you know insurance paying with their clinician they really need this they can't afford it many of us will do it for zero dollars or the cost of the medicine um, because this is a calling right like there 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 is something in this that we would do probably for no money if we had to not probably all of the people that I know that do this would do this for no money um, and so that that part of it is unsustainable on a large scale and there's not enough people with that kind of heart and connection and that's the other problem is that part of why the medicine treatments are so effective when you work with sort of my small camp of mindful and um, connected and truly compassionate you know clinicians is that um, there just aren't a lot of us so even if it were to become a model that was supported by by all insurances and pharmaceuticals were, were pumping them out and the generic was available for free People are not going to have the kind of experience that we offer in a clinical setting. They are going to have a an experience that's you know maybe similar. Um, but we we are really worried about that too. We're also just worried about states like you know South Dakota, where if you get caught with a single mushroom cap, you go to jail for like ever. Um, <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. So yeah, you can actually. I found this out because one of my clients uh, is from South Dakota. And he's so scared that we're doing his treatment in Mexico. Um, but in South Dakota, if they suspect that you did drugs, like in the last week, all they have to do is suspect that you did drugs. They can force you without your consent to take your blood and test it for drugs. What the absolute? How's that constitutional? Don't they? And then they, they must have at least. I'm sure it's not. 
but they also can then use that to prosecute you for possession and consumption if it's wow. just present in your blood. And That's this horrendous. was them like cracking down on meth, I guess, was there. This was the big campaign, the governor's mm. huge campaign that he's going to be blood testing people. So even if you don't have it on you, um, you know, if you throw it in the bushes, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's like, so, you know, we got, we got a lot of obstacles and right now, uh, the thing that, you know, I just, I, I want access to be so broad, but I also worry that that will really pollute, um, what is possible. So this is just going to be a thing that I think like good, healthy, organic foods and farmers markets and the things that have exploded over the last 20 years. This is going to be a grassroots thing. It has to happen in people's communities. They have to be passionate about it. They have to create communities and systems and, and, and demand change and openness. And I don't think that the pharmaceuticals and the insurance companies are going to be able to be much of a part of this for a really long time. Hmm. It's just not going to happen in a way that, you know, honors what these things are capable of. Um, it's kind of like the difference between sitting in a circle with your buddies and smoking a bong and taking a THC pill from your psychiatrist. Like these are not even related. You're not even, they're not even like in the same category of experience. Um, so it's, it's, I, you know, I'm, I'm like you said, it's an exciting time. I'm interested to see how it all unfolds in a perfect world, I could clone myself and my eight favorite other medicine workers and we could disperse through the country and, and do this all day, every day for people. Um, but right now it really is only available to people who can travel and who have money or who are going to a clinician who knows about it, people who do it for sliding scale, which is just this tiny population, which unfortunately doesn't really support us very well either. One of the things that I'm gonna be boldly doing is actually marketing for the first time my work. Um, which is super scary, not only because then I have to stand firm in, in my belief in myself as, as a medicine worker, but also because who knows what the blowback on that will be. But I want it. I want people who are looking for this because hundreds and hundreds of people are searching psychod therapeutic psychedelics a day and it goes yeah. nowhere. Yeah. Well, I was felt the thing that I felt most optimistic that came out of Michael Pollan's book that it was that he was asked, you know, in the aftermath of the book, he was expecting there to be this huge blowback and that he was scared and he was expecting to really be attacked and that there was none of that and that all none of the of response was that's... overwhelmingly positive and that there was no like legal repercussions or yes. people. Yeah. That's amazing. That makes me so happy. It's the same. So that's the same for all of the people that I work with. We all get together and talk about our fears and then we all remind each other that nothing has ever happened to anyone. Yeah. There have been two people ever in the history of psychedelic work that have been prosecuted and, you know, I think fined. They weren't even jailed. And it was because they were using um, the medicines in a way that was facilitating sort of sexual misconduct. Oh. Um, and so I don't know the details of that, but I know that that's the only two times that anything has ever gone in front of a, a judge or jury. And so the fear is unfounded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, we, have no, we have no reason to be scared that a bunch of graduate educated psychological mental health professionals are going to be the target of a big sting um, so that we can stop helping people heal from their trauma. But I do want it to get out there more. So do please, if I don't do the medicine, um, I can always refer people to someone who does. There is a beautiful community of people doing this work. And a lot of times they're all over and they're willing to travel. And we can also host them here. 
So that was my next question is, uh, before we go into the questions that we ask every guest, uh, is there advice that you would give for somebody who feels like they would like to investigate this type of therapy further? Any places they can be yeah. reach you if that's yeah. an option or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the best thing to do is just um, reach out to me directly and I can point them depending on what their questions are to resources or I can be that resource myself. I mean, I'm Becca Brarin. It's my name, E-C-C-A-B-R-A-R-E-N at gmail.com. And I, I field a lot of questions. I do panel discussions at psychedelic societies. I do that sort of thing pretty consistently. Um, and that's a good place to start. I think it's um, scary to start investigating this stuff. Um, and so, you know, I would just encourage people if they're if they have any spark of interest, a single conversation can really, you know, settle a lot of the nerves and give them a path forward um, and maybe open their mind to possibilities that are maybe a good for them. So that would be the first thing. I mean, there are, I mean, Michael Pollan's book, obviously. I mean, if people want to do a really intensive, you know, month of research, read that book cover to cover. You will know as much as many of the people who are practicing in this field. He does a, a really incredible job of the history, the science, the almost impossible to describe experiences. So that's a fantastic place to start to maps. The organization maps, mm -hmm. um, is doing all of the, the advocacy and policy and, you know, pushing the FDA to do more studies and providing, um, grants and, and research support. They're a great organization as well. There are usually psychedelic societies in most locations. I have mixed feelings about those. They tend to be, um, not always the most healthy places. Um, that sounds awful to say, but my experience has been it's really great to work with a clinician. The psychedelic societies are not a great place to get um, sort of a, uh, a first impression of what <laughs> a lot of the people there are just, they're, they're psychedelic enthusiasts and cheerleaders and um, are, are not going to give you an idea of what the outcomes of some, th some therapeutic psychedelic sessions would be like. Well, I had one, one final question. Do you have any, so yeah. like, is, would you say there's a difference between getting the say Bufo from the natural source of the, the frog versus a synthetic version of yes. the five MMO? Completely, completely different experience. I only work with the natural substance. Um, and I only know this, um, from my, my clients who've done both, but everybody that I know who has, um, done DMT, synthetic DMT and then done the Bufo toad has experienced what some version of what I experienced on the Bufo toad and says that it is in no way like what happens on synthetic DMT. Really? Um, yeah. So they say, you know, there's this sort of like annihilation for 15 minutes, but it's not the golden glow. I, I don't know how to describe it without that color. There is this warm golden, um, very loving, and warm and maternal nothingness as opposed to just vast frashling darkness. Um, so yeah, my, I, I can't say from personal experience, but I have dozens and dozens, um, of clients who've said, I'm so glad that I did the natural because it is a completely different experience. But of course, okay. I, I also should, should, um, say along with that, they were doing it with a guide, a very experienced guide and not probably with four friends on a porch, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that could be a, a major part of it because when people feel safe 
a greater portion of their default mode network can go offline and they can sink much more deeply into the wave of whatever that experience is. Hmm. Um, when you're with your buddies and you know everybody's fucked up, you your brain just does not shut down as fully as it does when you're in a safe space with a person you trust. Um, so it, it could also be that. So I'm not going to say definitively, but my what I've heard is that the natural is, is the way to go if you want a therapeutic experience. Well, it sounds like we should go visit Becca for our Bufo experience. Yeah, it sounds much, <laughs> much more... Uh... Come to Malibu. We, we do it on a mountain. You lie under these beautiful, like, windy ficus trees with the sounds of birds and the ocean below. It's not it's not a bad place to do your to do your journey. Maybe we'll try to we'll try to fly home from Thailand to have a, a you know, stop Jeez. in LA and then continue on. Jeez. I think it sounds like a wonderful reentry to the United States. Yeah. I think that, that is the probably the best way to have to reintegrate into this culture. Yeah, I can <laughs> be honest with you. I'm a little nervous about that reintegration. Yeah, we came we went back to the States for a month this time last year, the month of May. And uh, it was crazy. We had I mean, we'd been out of the country for a little over nine months at that point. And as I mentioned earlier, um, when we shortly after coming to Thailand, maybe after about a month here, I just slowly started noticing that all of my health problems, paranoia, all of these things that I thought were an integral part of my identity and like just who I was, um, and like things that I just had to learn, you know, coping mechanism, coping mechanisms for, uh, had just dissolved. Like they were just no longer a part of me and it was wild. Um, and then we went back to, and Trevor had a similar experience, although I don't think quite as noticeable because he didn't have, like, I had all of these heart problems from anxiety that I didn't even realize we're from you know stress and anxiety um and then we went back to america and like within you know 36 hours all of my heart problems were back all of his paranoid thoughts were back like everything we were immediately like tense our bodies were just like you know in in stress mode like clenching and uh it was crazy uh uh, yeah, man, it was such a wild experience to really be completely so removed from that plan. culture and go back in. So, mm-hmm. so we have a plan. You guys will stop in Malibu, and then you will have something to update all your listeners on. <laughs> uh, you can you can uh, confirm or deny all my claims about the the majesty of this Mount Everest psychedelic. That sounds great. Yeah. And to do it yeah. on your your magical mountaintop in Malibu also yeah. sounds good. <laughs> That's, you should, I mean, with or without the toad, you guys, if you're not ready for that, which I fully just, you know, total, total honesty, I think you can both handle the toad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys are it's something we've been interested in, but yeah, meeting these people here, I mean, especially this one guy who's just trying so hard to sell us on it, that it really yeah. puts me off. Like I've just been, I just, yeah, it's been like the opposite of like, I'm, I'm I have a, I definitely have a true curiosity and the stories i've heard of people who've done it all really resonate with me but then this setting just makes me mm-hmm. feel gross yeah <laughs> and he rents a lot of money for it too so yeah the fact that he just wants to charge so much for it and i mean yeah, there's just a couple of and i'm more of an experimenter a psychonaut like you know as long as it was relatively safe i would be like oh you know i could always have a more realistic but there's just something about it that just you know especially because it's something so such a profound experience I'm, I'm much more apprehensive than i i normally would be yeah yeah i think that's really smart and i would just flag in your statement about that sort of hard sell um keep that in mind i i i keep that in mind as i try to tell people about it just because whether your experience like 
even in the work that I do, I have to be really careful to not come across evangelically because it's been so powerful for me, especially as somebody who does it um, as a profession. You know, it's very, it's, it's a fine, there's a very, very fine line between being enthusiastic and sharing, you know, the, the majesty of this wild, profound experience and also sounding like, a business person trying to sell you on their yeah, used but I car think the main whatever. reason why you're like one of the most compelling creatures in this universe is because at your core, no matter what you're doing, you are a storyteller above all else. And when you're te- <laughs> when you're telling these stories, they just yeah trans yeah. transport. You totally you, get know. me. Yeah. I love you. It's so <laughs> funny. I was doing something the other day, and I and I I can't remember what it was, but somebody was like oh, man, I bet you're a great writer. And I was like, man, I just don't get to write that often anymore. But that is what, it, turning all of this, all from, from the four children to, the, to, the, to the, the heroin addiction, to the becoming a filmmaker, to all of it, the only reason why it has value on this planet is because I've been able to turn it into something that can inspire other people. I've somehow created a way to talk about all this stuff. I hope, I hope, maybe I'm... I'm overestimating my my impact but I hope that I've been able to turn all those experiences into this movie that will help people navigate something really complicated and I hope that by talking about psychedelics um, in a way that is clear and hopefully you know exciting that that it will inspire people to take action the stories are everything you're totally right it's not about if you tell a story in the right way, it has the power to completely change the world and change the way people think. Their perspectives can go 180 in a five-minute conversation. And I've seen the power of that in my own life and aspire to that for sure. So the fact that you said that is so appreciated. Oh. <laughs> it's so, so important for me to hear that reflection. So thank you. Absolutely. Do we have a release Absolutely. date for the documentary that we've been waiting very patiently now for? Since Jenna <laughs> yes. showed me the trailer two years ago now. Yes. yes. So um, I had to take a break for a year because <laughs> that was um, killing me slowly. Um, and once I took the break, we hired a new editor. He should be done with a rough cut, a new rough cut, because one of the things that's happening in this movie is that the psychedelics are playing a totally prominent role, whereas two years ago, the movie we were making, they barely make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to, I mean, we, who knows what the what the, 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 the landscape of the festival universe will be yeah. um, wow, this year. Yeah, I didn't year, think but about that. Yeah, we are only applying to A+. Plus a festival so we're talking Cannes, Sundance, um, South by, um, Toronto, Telluride. Um, We believe that our um, ambitions will be realized in the creative at this point. We didn't have enough money to have it edited properly two years ago either. We've gotten, um, we don't have quite enough to finish it but we've got almost enough to make a, you know, I don't want to say Oscar contender because that's maybe too too arrogant but it's gonna be a fucking good movie yeah dude just based <laughs> on your trailer i mean oh, like your what, 11 minute trailer yeah we've watched it probably 10 times now at least and every time it's goosebumps so... and we both tear up like i mean it's so yeah, and i grew up in an aa it's... household and there was a certain way of speaking about addiction that never i mean it, i always found it fascinating but i wouldn't say that it quite resonated with me i always felt like there was something uh wrong about the rhetoric and the conversation cult, yo it's a cult it's a <laughs> yes. goddamn cult. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's there's aspects about it that I love, and I think that they're right on the money for. But to hear the way that you speak about addiction resonates so much more strongly with me and my experience with it and people around me. Uh, it was really refreshing to hear. Yeah. I can't wait I'm to watch the, the documentary. Yeah, and you have Gabor Mate in it. He's I the first it, person I ever bad. heard yeah. like who really resonated with me on this topic. And I mean, he's just wow. That's awesome. He's my homie. He's an amazing person. He's going to be part of my, he's the advisor at the place I've been working for the last few months, um, wow. leading groups. But so he's, um, he's going to be on my board or not on my board. He's going to be one of my advice. What is, what do we call him? He's an advisor for, for Meta. That's amazing. Um, and I talked to him regularly. I mean, I talked, he's, he's, a. you're blowing he's, my mind right now. <laughs> yeah, that's very, like very celebrity excited. status. I feel like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, he's um he's a big cheerleader and he has given me um I, I have cried at every email he's ever written me Aww. because of the way that he sees me. And it it is this way of see and he sees everybody this way, right? So I'm not special. It's just that he sees the core of every human as equally valuable and full of promise and wounded to whatever degree they're wounded, but that that is not the thing that should define them. And the way that he speaks to me specifically about the work I'm trying to do on the planet, I just am reduced to disbelief um, at what he has. And, you know, I mean, he's just, ah, yes, it's going to be a fucking great movie. And we're hoping to be able to go to festivals this year. It should be done, you know, August at the latest. We'll probably do some screenings in August and September. And then, um, you know, we just want to take over the world and change the way that everybody <laughs> thinks about this stuff. <laughs> and I want to become a big celebrity expert on um, healing addiction without the 12 steps and uh, really start to get the word out. Because I think that all the people who are in the film, all of these remarkable, just these 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 visionary um, mental health advocates and these reformers, they're all not storytellers. And so this is my, I got into CalArts. It's so funny. I got into CalArts for a graduate writing program, which I didn't end up finishing because it was, I could go for, on for days about how stupid CalArts is. Sorry, people <laughs> who went there. But in my, in my application essay, I said something to the effect of, I just want to tell um, true stories um, that are important in a way that will help people navigate life better. Or something. And I don't know if I even meant it really at the time, but that has been like, I don't need to make anything up. There's so much rich data and so much incredible fucking work being done out there by people who can't even talk about it in a conversation, not to mention get it out there in front of millions of lives save. So it puts me, I feel like in a position of, of such enormous obligation and power to choose which stories are worth telling. And, you know, this is just my first yeah. one. So I look forward to whatever grabs me next. <laughs> I have an idea. I think it's psychedelics. I think I'm going to do a full documentary on psychedelics next. Nice. Um, That's awesome. Well, we'll see. I'm so happy that so, yeah, you're the one changing the world. You're, yeah, this, it's a world that I want to live in, a world where you're, you're at the yes, forefront. Yes, you, you guys can come to come to the red carpet with me because I'm going to need um, like lots of really cool people who get me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. We'd be very honored to be in your entourage. Yes. I need you guys in my entourage. There's not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of people who get me. Even the people who work on this movie with me are always kind of like, you're crazy. <laughs> what? Which well, I, seems crazy. 
Yeah, man. Yeah, I loved you the moment so I met much- you. I knew you were in my tribe. I know. I was trying to explain to my kids. Um, Edward, uh, the big boys totally remember you. Edward, of course, does not because he was a tiny little crawling baby, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was trying to explain why I was excited to be on the podcast. And I was trying to explain your character. And I was having a hard time putting your character into words because there's this um, playfulness. That's the word I should have used. There's a there's a, a very severe and engaged and um, sharp and witty and smart part of you, but then there's this layer of play and creativity and uh, risk taking and I don't know. I loved you too. It was very mutual. Ah, that was a beautiful description. That Thank was you. A description. <laughs> Spot on. Spot on. This is what is what does Ollie remember about me? How old is he? 16? He's 17. He's on some beach making out with his girlfriend right now because he's been in Nashville for the last three months. And he, like, got a girlfriend the week before he went to Nashville. And then he got stuck in Nashville for three months. And he's been back for, like, a week. And I basically haven't seen him. I bet he's such a good boyfriend, though. I bet you have made him, like, he's, yeah, he's he's on the, he's going to be, like, leading the revolution of what men are. he is. The only problem, though, is that he is just going to leave this trail of broken women because obviously he's not going to marry. He He's had one very serious girlfriend already. This is his second serious girlfriend. And I mean, I uh, I took the girl to dinner at least three times in the months after they broke up because she was just destroyed uh-huh. and she was such a precious girl. But they weren't meant for each other. And it was puppy love. And so I, 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 every, I won't ever meet him anymore. I refuse to meet him because I can already see the, the heartbreak down the line. And it's, he's 17. They're not getting married. And yeah. I can't get close to them anymore because I just know it's a very tricky position to be in as a mom who loves teenagers because I want to just wrap them in love and bring them into my home. But I made the mistake with the first girlfriend and I will not repeat it. Oh, that's so tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. I, I mean, took the he's first gonna be—he's obviously—he's gonna break hearts, but also he's gonna like show them a model for like you how yes, you can but be then loved. Yes, they are so high, they're fucked. Yeah, that's fair. That's really good. But no, I still they're love like, it. I still, I still want people's expectations to be <laughs> high and for them to yeah I go guess. through the world knowing that it can be that good. I, I, um, I'm so glad I didn't have a boyfriend that was that good ever. I just. <laughs> So I, I had such, such, you know, mediocre high school boyfriends. Um, (laughs) and so I wasn't, I wasn't destroyed on the level that I would have been destroyed if I'd have had an Ollie. So, but yeah, he's amazing. And they all, um, smoke a lot of weed, which we're California. We eat a lot of avocados and smoke a lot of weed. So (laughs) 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 it's like, that's, uh, pretty much, you know, that we surf and we snowboard and they're, they're great. But yeah, they remembered, what was the memory that they remembered? It, it had to do with an art project or something that we were doing at Shauna's house. That was the thing that stood out the most. Well, yeah, the, I, the first time we met was at the Nerdy New Parents of Culver City dinner party when yes. you were pregnant. And um, oh, Ollie and I immediately went to the corner. Like we just, we just like saw each other and we we're like, yo, you're my boy. Like immediately. And we went to the corner and just started like drawing pictures of my neighbor Totoro and uh, like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't he's know. exactly the same. 
he's that level of enthusiasm and upbeatness and like that that ability to connect deeply and meaningfully immediately yeah. with the right I, people he was, like, he was like he's got a nose thing I've ever met. i was like a 10 year old i i feel totally legitimate saying like, this 10 year old boy is is like one of my one of the best people i've ever met and like just an instant soulmate like i just yeah loved totally him to his course like that. That. do you know who ann lamont is the writer no she wrote um you would like her i think you'd really like her she wrote a book a number of, of semi-famous books um the main one i think she got most popular for was called operating instructions but she's a She's a beloved sort of short story writer. Um, and she, I ran into her with Oliver on a trail when he was two weeks old. And she's kind of a guru. People kind of look to her for, for she's written self-help books a lot. She's this crazy lady with these dreadlocks. She's very weird looking. But I knew who she was on the trail. And she walked up and she was like, can I, can I, can I look at your baby? <laughs> and she was just, Wow. And she held up his hand, and I hadn't noticed this yet, but Oliver has the hands of an old man from the day he was born. <laughs> Ten million wrinkles on his hands, you guys. I've never seen, and my other kids didn't have it. His hand looked like a little old man's hand. And she was like, oh, my gosh, you guys have this this incredibly old soul who's going to be your teacher and your leader. And I knew who she was. My husband at the time was like, who is this crazy dreadlock lady <laughs> telling us like crazy stuff about our baby on this hike? But I, that was when I started to consider what it would be like to have some sort of powerful creature as a child. And he very much is that. Yes, totally. And you nurtured that so well. Yeah, I've always, you, you being a parent is like been the most inspiring. Uh, you're the most inspiring parent I've ever met that could make me want to be a parent. Just that you genuinely like your kids and, you know, in such a special, beautiful way that you're never like, ugh my kids you're always like no. what a how cool are these how cool are these guys that i'm hanging out with <laughs> and they rise they they're rise so amazing. and i think it? that you know you guys will hopefully i was gonna say you guys will hopefully be in that camp of people that get inspired to have children i don't know if you met my my roommate kate i think you probably didn't she'd probably moved away but she was this punk rocker who came to live in our extra room and you know she partied hard and by the time she left, she was engaged and, and planning to have kids because she lived at our house for two years and had never considered child rearing to be an adventure in love and creativity and, um, you know, growth, like growing together. And, and, you know, now she's got two kids and she's pregnant with her third. And wow. it's so affirming for me. Also, I have to share one, one more thing. I became a grandmother in a um, not biological way. Um, last summer I helped deliver the first child of the, the young woman who I considered to be kind of my first child. I started working with her when she was 14 years old, um, right after her mother committed suicide, which I did not know at the time, probably wouldn't have been so carefree about taking the job. Um, but she was an only child, no sisters or cousins or aunts. And so I became her mom when I was 20 years old and I stayed with her for the last, you know, 20 years. Every bra she had to buy, every dance she went to, every broken heart, taking her to college, to the dorm, you know, planning wow. her, helping her set up every apartment and the wedding and then the baby. And then, you know, just I've been her mom and um, she had a baby last summer that I was I actually helped deliver. Very different than having your own babies have very mixed feelings about whether or not that's anything anybody should see if you have like trauma with blood. <laughs> but. Um, but 
but I, I went to go and help her through a crisis last week and I spent a really, a lot of time with this child that I realized is my grandchild and I will be the only grandmother she knows. And I, and I, and I had Sasha ask me what I wanted to be called. And I had this moment of realizing that I'm done being the mother of small children and I have entered this totally unexpected new chapter of my life um, as a grandmother. And then I visualized this ocean of babies, these beautiful babies that my children will go out and have. I have another foster daughter too, which I didn't talk about at all on this podcast and I should have because she is the light of my life. But, um, but I, and I had to like, grieve the parenting phase of my life and welcome in the future grandmother role, which is so much bigger and deeper than I ever would have expected. And I decided that I wanted to be called Amma, which all my children's friends call me Mama Becca. And so this is, you know, pretty similar, Amma Becca, but Amma, for those who speak Spanish, is the action of, you know, like if you say you, you love your dog, you would say, Su ama el perro. So it's the action of love. So now I'm going to go by ama. That's which beautiful. Is so weird. But so anyway, yeah, I feel less like a mom these days and more like a grandma. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> well, it has been so incredibly wonderful to talk to you and get to hear <laughs> about all of the magical things that you are doing and creating. And I'm so excited that we now have a plan to come visit you as our re-entry to American society. <laughs> you guys, I'm so excited to host you. And um, it, it's it's just been a real real pleasure. You guys are wonderful. And I appreciate the um, enthusiasm and support. It really means a lot to me. I appreciate all of the wonderful contributions you're making to the world. Thank you. On behalf of humans and the planet. <laughs> yes, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And you guys get here quickly. Let me know when you're coming, okay? All right. Sounds good. We'll do. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.